ahead and find our seats. As you are finding your seats, you can open up your Bibles uh, to the book of Daniel. If you don't have a Bible, there are some pew Bibles that should be laying around you. If you don't actually own physically a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as our gift. And in the pew Bible, it will be page 737. Well, this morning we are starting a new series called Kingdom and Exile as we look at the book of Daniel. And I'm always excited to start a book, i got to admit, but I'm really excited about this book for a couple of reasons. Um, one of the reasons is, like, um, like if you grew up in church, like some of these stories are going to be familiar to you. I don't know if you grew up maybe in the era that I did. I mean, you saw a lot of these scenes played out on flannel graph, you know. Um, but <laughs> as, as I've been studying this book, I mean, this is a terrifying book, really. I mean, you know, I mean, I remember like the floating lion kind of up there with Daniel and it seemed all very tranquil. But I mean, like if I if I read this out loud to my kids at night, it would be a little bit scary. So there are some some vivid imagery. So it's going to be familiar, like if you have a, a background in church. But if not, there's going to be enough. Uh, I think that you can jump jump in and, and understand where we are. But not only is it these wonderful stories, I mean, it has these these pictures where, I mean, like we see like the hand of God writing on a wall and people's blood like goes out of their face and they literally turn ghost white. I mean, so they're and for a Middle Eastern culture, that's saying something. So this is a book that uh, should keep our attention. You know what I'm saying? It should help us to, to stay in what we are uh, focused on. And um, I really believe that in the midst of this book, God wants to do some pretty specific things. Um, this book is an ancient book. I mean, it's written beginning around 600 years before the time of Christ. But like all scripture, these are God's words, right? I mean, this isn't I mean, we can have a, a temptation, particularly maybe in the South, to kind of look at God's word, maybe like it's in a Petri dish and we're scientists and we're trying to dissect it. But we can't miss the fact that this is God speaking to us. These words caused nations to rise and nations to fall. It caused hearts to change. And the reality is any time that we open up the word of God, God is addressing each of us. So we have a, a wonderful invitation from God. And this is what I think he wants to do in particular in our lives in this church. This book is going to go to the core of our fears. Most of us, if we are honest with ourselves, fear is a silent killer. It kills our joy. It kills our freedom. It causes us to walk around in a superficial way that won't acknowledge the reality of what's going on inside of us. So it's going to address us on the level of our fears, but it's also going to address us with a God that's greater than our fears and that can be trusted. 
I'm praying that God would use this book in particular to give us a global perspective. We all have this real temptation to shrink God down to the size of our lives, to shrink God down to the size of our concerns. What you're going to see in the book of Daniel is a global God who is working and shaping history towards his appointed end. And that's that people from every tribe, every tongue, every language and every nation on the planet come to worship King Jesus. Right. That's what the book of Daniel is about. And I know that there are people in this room that are passionate about seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. This is going to be a book that you want to dial into. We want to be able to see God lift our eyes beyond our current circumstances to see a big picture of what God is doing in the world. This book is going to help us read our Bibles better. In Luke chapter 24 Jesus gives us his authoritative interpretation of the New Testament. This is what he says in Luke 24, after his resurrection and before his ascension. He says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, The Old Testament is not just merely a story, a collection of stories, but it is a picture to reveal Jesus. If we miss Jesus in the book of Daniel, we miss the whole book, right? So what we're looking to see is a definitive picture of the saving grace of God that is at work 600 years before Jesus is even on the scene. Right. So this is going to help us begin to read the Old Testament. And that's why I'm passionate about that, because when you begin to see Jesus in the whole story, that this is one book with one story and one hero. And this isn't about daring to become a Daniel, although Daniel is a a wonderful, uh, trustworthy individual that's worthy of um, imitation. But this book is about Jesus. Right. This book is about us having our hearts transformed as we behold the promises of God that ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Sorry about that. Daniel is a book that tells us something. It is probably the most important book if you're going to understand eschatology, which literally means the study of the last things. And so, like, you have to get the book of Daniel right, or you can end up in some pretty strange places. So we're going to look at what God has to say about the future. We're going to look at how God brings a picture of the future into the present to give his people hope. We're also going to see a, a picture of the sovereignty of God. We're going to see a picture of spiritual warfare, like the reality of evil, real evil and real spiritual forces at work in the world. And so we're going to see a picture of God's sovereignty, but a picture of God's sovereignty. Most of the time we think that makes us passive. But what we see applied in the book of Daniel is this is because God is sovereign and God is working and God is 100 percent for his people. It causes them to pray. So the book of Daniel is going to help us to pray. Daniel is 12 chapters long. The first six chapters of this book 
come to us as a narrative or a story. And those are going to be those flannel graph scenes that I was talking about that are going to be pretty familiar to many of us. And then the last six chapters of this book are apocalyptic, or they are vivid imagery that God gives to his people to show them his ownership of the future to give them hope in the present. And we're going to look at that probably beginning at the 1st of October. This morning we're going to begin Daniel chapter 1, where we see the people of God that are brought into exile as a response for their repeated idolatry. And this is kind of the image that you need to have in your mind. These are people that are forcibly removed from their homes and forced to march hundreds of miles into the kingdom of Babylon. And that's what we're going to see as we look at Daniel chapter 1. So if you are able, would you stand with me as we read Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Asphenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave... Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigns your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So would, so you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at at the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning 
and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, now we want so much to see you. I pray that you would burn away the dross that so easily accumulates on our hearts. That you would cause everything to fall away except seeing Jesus in this moment. That you would visit us with yourself and that you would transform us by your word. That we may represent you as your people in the world. Thank you that this is dependent on you and not on our faithfulness, that you are the one that keeps us and sustains us. And I pray that you would send the Spirit now to empower me and to help us to apply this word very specifically to our hearts. I pray that you would help us in these moments to marvel at who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Daniel is written to the exiles that are in Babylon. This is supposed to be a book of hope in the midst of national tragedy. It's a message that God's power and His purposes will not fail for His people. It is, takes place really over 66 years So this is a collection of writings and a collection of visions. And and like any good book, like chapter 1 kind of forms an introduction. It helps us to see some of the major themes of the book. It introduces us to some of the main characters. And the main character of this book undoubtedly is God himself. You will notice Three times in that narrative, God gave. God gave the people of Israel into Babylon. God gave Daniel favor. God gave these young youths wisdom and skill and all appearance. All of those things come from the hand of God. So we are looking at a narrative that highlights who God is. And we're going to be pulled into the drama immediately. Look at verses 1 and 2. In the third year... Of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and and with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So, this drama unfolds specifically as God gives Jehoiakim, king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And this happens all around 605 B.C. And this begins a process that lasts about 19 years where all of the people of Israel in the southern kingdom are moved forcibly from their homes and caused to march Hundreds of miles to the kingdom of Babylon. I mean, this is a national tragedy. I mean, if you are aware of the history of the the people of Israel, the idea of exile is the worst and the most unimaginable thing that could ever happen. All of the promises of God. You can remember back to the promises that are made to Abraham. 
All of the promises are, I'm going to give you this land. And it's going to be in this land that I'm going to show you my faithfulness. It's in this land that I'm going to raise up a people for myself. So the fact that these people are now in exile is absolutely unimaginable. And to make it even more explicit, I mean, it is at the hand of the Babylonians. It's at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, who is, as we unpack this book, is a a tyrannical ruler who just rules with an iron fist. And it is the people of God that are delivered into his hands. I mean, for us to be able to really get our hands around this, I mean, you you have to think of it like this. Think of all of our national tragedies. Whatever it is for you, if it's 9-11, if it's Pearl Harbor, if it's the assassination of JFK, if it's the school shootings that take place, if it's the natural disasters that wreak havoc. Like you can combine all of those things together and multiply them by about a thousand and you might begin to get into the mind of what it means to be a person in exile. The reason that this is so devastating is because it's permanent, right? I mean, they're not in their land. They're not in their homes. And for us to be able to really understand the purpose of this book and for this not to be just a collection of nice stories, like we have to identify ourselves as exiles. The book of Philippians reminds us that this world is not our home. That we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That we have found ourselves in the midst of a cosmic struggle. And there are some specific things that I believe that God wants us to help make connection with as our lives as exiles. The first is, there's going to be times in our lives when our circumstances seem to contradict the character and the nature of God. There's going to be times in our lives when the promises of God seem distant to us. There are going to be a time, there are going to be times in our life when it seems like darkness is winning the day. And our perspective in those moments will shape how we live out our lives as exiles. I mean, there are going to be times in our life where we are going to legitimately ask, like many saints throughout all of history, where is God in the midst of this? Where is God in the midst of my suffering? Where is God in the midst of my trouble? And what we're going to see on display in Daniel chapter 1 is a God that is right there with His people, sustaining His people. What we're going to see come into focus is the redemptive sovereignty of God. Most of us, like, if you believe in a creator God, right, and you believe God created everything, like, you believe he's sovereign, but most of us don't believe in redemptive sovereignty, that God not only is sovereign over everything, but he's working all things together in our lives to meet us at a point of need, that he's meeting us exactly where we need him. So what Daniel chapter 1 shows us is that we have a God that is with us, we have a God that redeems Tim Keller, in his book, The King's Cross, he recounts a story from George MacDonald called The Princess and the Goblin. George MacDonald is the primary influence on C.S. Lewis, so you're going to notice some overlap maybe in some things that George MacDonald does and C.S. Lewis does. 
The Princess and the Goblin is a, a children's story, and it contains some very powerful truth for us. This story centers around an eight-year-old little girl named Irene. She has these wonderful visits with a fairy godmother that she looks forward to. And in the midst of this, there is this one time in particular that Irene receives a gift from her fairy godmother in the form of a ring that has a thread on it. On the other end is a ball that the fairy godmother will always hold on to. And I want to read you a portion of this story because I think it's going to speak to where we are. This is the grandmother speaking, talking about following the thread wherever it will take her. Remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, but you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you must be sure, that while you hold it, that's the thread, I hold it too. A few days later, Irene is in bed and goblins get into the house. She hears snarling in the hallway, but she has the presence of mind to take off her ring and put it under the pillow. And she begins to feel the thread, knowing that it's going to take her right towards the cave of the goblins. Inside the cave, the thread leads her up to a great heap of stones, a dead end. The thought struck her that at least she could follow the thread and go backwards and thus get out. But the instant she tried to feel it backwards, it vanished from her touch. The grandmother's thread only worked forward, but forward it led to a heap of stones. Irene burst into a wailing cry, but after crying, she realizes that the only way to follow the thread is to tear down the wall of stones. And she begins to tear down the wall stone by stone and her fingers begin to bleed and she pulls and she pulls. Suddenly, she hears a voice it's the voice of her friend, Curdie, who has been trapped in the goblin's cave. Curdie is astounded. Why ever did you come here? Irene replied, my grandmother sent me. And now I think I know why. As we follow the thread of our lives, there are going to be lots of situations that we're in where we don't understand. The key to living life as an exile is to know who's on the other side. The point of the book of Daniel is that this thread leads them to a place of unimaginable pain, an unimaginable sorrow, but on the other side is a God that is keeping them and sustaining them. Tim Keller goes on to say, the reason that we find it so hard to trust God in so many of our circumstances is because we're finite. Like we're not eternal. And from the perspective of eternity, we have a God who is working and shaping all things to show his glory. But not only his glory, but to show us his power and his goodness in our lives. So to live life in this present world. To live life as an exile. We have to allow God himself to interpret our circumstances. It's very easy in our fallen world and what we think is our own wisdom to judge our circumstances or to judge God by our circumstances. 
God wants us to be able to know his character and his redemptive sovereignty in such a way that we trust him in the midst of difficulty. Another point of connection for us is that we are living in a kingdom of conflict. Not only is this a a national conflict, but this is a spiritual one as well. And from all appearances, Babylon has the upper hand. It says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, verse 2, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. The book of Ezra tells us that that's 5,400 vessels from the temple of God that are brought into Babylon. So and we're talking about, this is adding insult to humiliation. In the temple of these foreign gods is the, the things that are used to worship the holy God of Israel. In a real way, he wants to draw attention. Look at verse 3. He calls Babylon the land of Shinar. That's, that's a throwback to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 11, Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was built up. So what Daniel is communicating to the readers and to the exiles is that you have been brought into the heart of a place that is known for self-autonomy, known for self-worship. I mean, if you remember the Tower of Babel, I mean, it is that place where people said, I'm going to build up a tower to, to heaven itself so that we can be gods. So that's what's on display. There is a, a kingdom that is in conflict. And not only that, but the king Nebuchadnezzar decides that he is going to take the best and the brightest from the, from the nation of Israel, and he's going to reprogram them to be Babylonian. So the point could not be more clear. We have all of the objects of your temple. We have the best and the brightest of your future. Abandon all hope, right? Abandon everything that you would put your trust in. Your future belongs to Babylon and your future belongs to its gods. So this situation could not be more stark. So there is a definitive clash that's going to take place between the God of Israel and the God of Babylon. So the question is, how will God preserve his people? In this land that is filled with every conceivable indulgence, how will God keep his people pure? And it all kind of centers around this eating of food. Look at verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, why such a big deal about the food and the drink? And it's not necessarily because... God only wants his people to eat vegetables and water, which, you know, I mean, that could be a good idea. Um, it's not because there's something that is instantly defiling about the idea of rich food and wine. Even Daniel himself in chapter 11 begins to participate in these things near the end of his life. Right. So what is it about this food in particular that is the battleground for the heart of God's people. And it all centers around 
the identity of the people of God. Look at verses 6 and 7. This resolving in Daniel's heart is a direct response to what takes place in verses 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So, in the ancient world, names carried special significance. They were a a means of authority. And so, changing their names was meant to change their fundamental identity. Daniel's name in Hebrew means God is my judge. They changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel, which is a Babylonian god, protect his life. Hananiah meant God is gracious. And it was changed to Shadrach, which means by the command of Aku, who was the moon god of Babylon. Mishael meant who is what God is. And it was changed to Meshach, meaning who is what Aku is. Azariah meant God has helped, and it was changed to Abednego, which means he was a servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. So what is going on is not merely just a change in name, but a change in identity. And so this is a direct response. They don't want to eat the king's food because they don't want to identify with the gods of Babylon. And so what we see at the heart of this passage is that God gave him favor. Look at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. Like, this is a big deal. Like, this guy's head is on the line, right? I mean, if Daniel begin and his friends begin to look a little bit, you know, I mean, this is like biggest loser, like on steroids right now. Like, if you, <laughs> I'm not going to say it, but I could. <laughs> the idea of, of eating vegetables and water, I mean, this is the supernatural sustaining power of God. This is a miracle. This isn't that that this is the, the, the way to really get in shape. So they're asking for favor. And what they see is a God that sustains him. Daniel was resolved that he would not defile himself. And sometimes like if, if we were going to like interpret this in a man centered way, we'd say, I'm going to be resolved. Right. What are you going to be resolved about this week that you're not going to do? But this idea of being resolved is a function of Daniel's confidence in God. This is a function that he believes deep down that God is better, that God is more lasting, that God is more satisfying, and that God is more than enough to keep his people for himself. So this is more than just um, a a, a picture of God um, sustaining people. This is... A miracle in and of itself. This is the people of God saying, I refuse to be named by the God of this world. And the reason that that is significant, our experience as exiles will be dependent upon the name that we live out of, right? I mean, the, the fact that if we're going to live out life in this present world, it's going to be tied to who we actually believe that we are. We don't want to miss this. I mean, there is 
an enemy of our souls. He may not be changing our name to who is like Bell, right? He may not be saying who is like Aku, but there are labels that we all wear inside of ourselves. There are some of you in this room, if I could have everybody's attention, that are carrying around the label that you are a failure and that shapes your experience of God. There are some of you that are wearing the name that you are broken beyond repair. There are some of you in this room that are wearing the name that you are unlovable and that you are unlovely. There are some of you that have resolved in this room that your marriage will be nothing more than a business partnership and you're living under that name. There are some of you who have substituted intimacy with God for busyness for God. And that's a poor substitute and you're living out of that. And the fact is that that Daniel did not defile himself. But we have a Savior in and of himself who was never defiled by sin. And he took the defilement of all of those things, all of those things that begin to label you. He took those on himself on the cross and we are washed clean. And now we have a new identity instead of a failure. You have the fact that you are a son or a daughter of God. You have the label that you belong to him. You have the label that you are loved by him. You have the label that you are forgiven by him. You have the label that he has good works for you prepared in advance. That's what's true about the people of God. So this whole thing is about will we live under the labels that the enemy of our souls want us to believe? Or will we live under the label that God himself has given us because of the finished work of Jesus Christ? That is good news for the people of God. You in this room are righteous because of the work of another. God wants you to believe that. And that is going to begin to shape how you live out your mission to the world. The only way that we can be countercultural, undefiled missionaries is if we cling closely to the cross of Jesus Christ. If we cling to the fact that we have been forgiven. Because if you don't understand your identity, you're never going to be able to bring someone to hope. If you don't believe the fact that you have been forgiven, you're not going to offer anyone forgiveness of sins. So for us to be countercultural missionaries to Jonesboro, Arkansas, it means that we live in the good of the name that God has given us. That's his purpose. That's the point of Daniel chapter one. It's not about what you eat. It's not about what you drink. It's about who you are. All right. Not only does is God with his people, not only does he keep his people, but he prospers his people. Let's look at verses 18 through 21. At the end of time. When the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 
ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And the reason I bring this up is because as this book unfolds, God is the active agent in the story. God is the one that is preserving his people. God is actually prospering his people. But God's prospering brings Daniel right into the heart of conflict. Right? God gives him these, these superior gifts that are going to be used on really the, the battlefield for God's glory. So God prospers us not for our own comfort or our own sake. God's prospering takes us right out into the heart of the conflict. And that's what we're going to see unfold more and more. Not only a God that sustains us and keeps us, but a God that prospers his people in such a way that they show his glory to the world. And that's what we're praying, that God would do that in our heart, that God would do that in our life, and that he would do that in our church, that we would believe in him in such a way that it would move us and shape us to believe that all he says about himself and all that he says about us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we actively fight against complacency. That we actively fight against just living out the motions here. I pray that you would legitimately free people from labels that they've believed about themselves their whole lives. I pray that you would free them from their sins. I pray that you would make a deep and a lasting impression on their souls. God, show forth your glory and your people as we behold your Son. Help us to be, Father, countercultural as we reflect your glory. I pray that you would send your Spirit to help highlight all that Jesus has done for us. It's for his power and his glory.